Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with New Orleans poet and educator Brad Richard. Brad's books include the soon-to-be-released Parasite Kingdom, as well as Habitations, Motion Studies, which was the winner of the Washington Prize and finalist for the 2012 Tom Gunn Award in Gay Poetry from the Publishing Triangle, and Butcher's Sugar. He has also published three chapbooks, The Men in the Dark, Curtain Optional, and Larval Songs. His poems and reviews have appeared in journals such as the American Letters and Commentary, the Iowa Review, Prairie Schooner, and many others. He was the 2015 Louisiana Artist of the Year, as well as recipient of awards and fellowships from the Poets and Writers Incorporated and the National Endowment for the Humanities. And he is the Chair of Creative Writing at Lesher Charter High School here in New Orleans. Brad Richard, welcome to the Writers Forum. How's it going today? Thank you, David. It's going great. How are you? I am doing very well. I know we're both making it through allergy season in one piece. Yes. <laughs> but uh, that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about uh, <laughs> this new book that you have out, uh, Parasite Kingdom. Uh, how does it feel to see this out in the world? It is really exciting. Um, you know, I've worked on this book, as you know, for 17 years off and on. So for it to finally be finished and out there... It was fantastic. I, I loved that, that long gestation period. What took so long in this particular book? Like, <laughs> just not to put it out there bluntly, but 17 years is a long time for a manuscript. It is a long time. That's a whole teenager. Um, so I, the first poem that I was able to write after 9-11 was the poem that became the germ of the whole book. It's called Fear. And I thought that that poem was going to be a one-off. It found a home in a good literary magazine. And I'm like, oh, good. I never have to visit that horrible place again. <laughs> but then it kept coming back. And I was in a really wonderful workshop with Alice Notley at Tulane. And I brought in a poem that didn't end up ever making it into the book. But she said the most interesting thing. She said, this poem reminds me in the best sense of a comic. Everything is exaggerated. There is the sense of a whole universe, you know, behind this one frame that I'm seeing in this poem. Yeah. And that really gave me permission to explore. So I explored. My explorations at first were not so deft. Um, and also, it really is not a very comfortable world to yeah. spend a lot of time in. And then, you know, I published two more books and a couple more chapbooks, um, totally unrelated to this. And then it really was the 2016 election and everything that happened politically and culturally that really drove me back into this. Yeah. So then I spent pretty much a full year working very intensely on it, revising old pieces, writing new work. And last summer send it off to a manuscript contest knowing that it wasn't really done, but just wanted to make that marker. It's like, okay, come on, you know, here's yeah. a deadline you set for yourself. You need to honor it, you know, pay the 20 bucks or whatever it was. And three weeks later, Leslie McGrath, the editor for that competition, called me and said she'd selected it. Yes, congratulations, Thank by you. the way. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I love that. And I know your other books are more the poems within them, while dealing around similar themes, are less interconnected than this one. What was it like kind of crafting a full narrative in this work of poetry? 
So that's an interesting question because in many ways there's not quite a complete narrative yeah. there. Can I read the opening of the preface? Yes, I'd love that. Great. So when Leslie McGrath and I talked on the phone after I'd won the Tenthgate Prize, we both agreed that it was going to be confusing in that state to readers because there are a lot of first-person narrators. And somewhere in that conversation, she said, we need some kind of a preface. It's like we need a historian from the future. Like, I love it. And one of my favorite literary forms is the hoax. Mm. So this is just the first paragraph of uh, What Lay Under Joy, Explicating the Tunnel Bundle by Dr. E.A. Melville. It was a time of monsters, military police and other state actors who tortured their prisoners, including children, scientists who conspired to feed the delusions of a tyrant, that tyrant a king trapped in his own paranoia, either powerless to control the widening chaos civil war, foreign threats, rapid environmental collapse, or indifferent to it. Others were beasts spawned from the imago of a gigantic blue female wasp, the king's nemesis, who lived in a burrow beneath the palace. Real or imaginary, she had a cult. Her followers died for her, and the deaths of their enemies were often ascribed to her supernatural intervention. And then he goes on to describe how they were excavating a site for a temple of joy, and they came across this uh, tunnel, mm-hmm. and in the tunnel was this bundle of strange manuscripts in a strange ancient language. <laughs> I love so, it. Yeah. Uh, very Margaret Atwood, actually. I, I love that kind of like uh, device, contextual right there. Yeah. Um, that's really fun for you and probably very freeing for the manuscript itself or for the book itself. Yes. Very, very much so. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Kind of, I know you have the Melville reference right there in the preface, and I know Melville, is the ghost of Melville and Moby Dick kind of haunts the book itself. Could you talk about that influence and what kind of attracted you to that work? Um, there's almost nothing I'd rather talk about. Oh, nice, good. <laughs> I hit it, yes. <laughs> I don't remember when it was that Moby Dick became part of this book, but I know that it had to do with thinking about a kind of violent obsession. You know, there's there's Ishmael's uh, strange kind of internal obsession with his own thoughts and his depression in the beginning of the book. And then, there, of course, there's Ahab's uh, murderous obsession and Moby Dick's murderous obsession, too. And the way that that obsession changes the entire world, you know, everything becomes about the whale. Mm-hmm. And it leads the book into that crazy Baroque architecture that it has, where it's like, I'm reading a narrative chapter. Now I'm reading a chapter that's a list. Now I'm reading a chapter that is a musical. What am I doing, right? Yeah. So I loved that. So when I came back to work on this project, I'm like, okay, just just write. You know. So I just started writing these individual poems. The centerpiece of the book is a long section called Waspacrypha. So a play on Apocrypha, but it's also a parody of the extract section of Moby Dick. So, you know, where where Melville just gathered everything he could Mm -hmm. find, right, from the Bible to sea shanties. Yeah. Uh, Any reference to whales, Hamlet, very like a whale, et cetera, and God created great whales, et cetera. So I took the extracts, and to the extent that it was possible, I substituted wasp for whale um, and also included some strange wasp things that I dug up. Yeah. So just a little taste of some of this. Sure. 
So the first one is, and God created great wasps. Now the Lord had prepared a great wasp to burrow into Jonah. There go the drones. There's that wasp whom thou hast made to fight therein. Um, I love this one. This is from a letter from Goldsmith to Johnson. If you should write a fable for little flies, you would make them speak like great wasps. <laughs> um, Hamlet, of course, becomes very like a wasp, and it goes on. And the wasp that dominates the book is she's a mythical wasp, so she's not any specific species, but she is a parasitic wasp. Mm -hmm. And the parasitic wasps inject eggs into host bodies, and then the larvae hatch, and they eat their way out of the host. It's disgusting. Yes. Yes. My, my, I hate wasps, so this is my oh, nightmare. No, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> I love wasps do now. I do. I was going to get into that, but I want to I hear about this. I do love wasps yes. now. Um, <laughs> but that, that image, that idea of the... Um, kind of infection or, you know, like you being a host for something else that changes who you are and what you are fascinated and terrified me. And I just keep exploring it over and over and over again in the book. Interesting. So tell me about the fascination with wasps. You are a wasp fan. I am very much <laughs> on the other side of that right there. What, what about the idea of a wasp besides that transformative aspect? It wasn't like I had thought a whole lot about them before yeah. writing this book, but um, the Ur wasp, so to speak, was um, a very literal one, a little blue wasp that I saw in rural Mississippi digging in the sand between some bricks on a patio. And she was just so fascinating and made me do a little research and realize, oh, there are all these species of wasps that are solitary wasps. In fact, if, I, if I'm correct, I think most wasp species are solitary wasps. Mm -hmm. And there are an astonishing number of species of wasps. I think it's almost 1,300, something like that, um, ranging from itty-bitty ones um, that have very specific functions. Like there's one wasp that pollinates figs. Really? Yep. Hmm. That's their job. <laughs> and then at the other extreme, there are the terrifying carnivorous wasps that literally eat meat. They are also really important pollinators. Yeah. And... They're actually, you know, we have a fear of wasps, of course, because their sting is so Potent. powerful. Yeah. yeah. But wasps are not aggressive, except maybe hornets. Mm. You know, hornets can become aggressive. But I think in general, most wasp species are not aggressive. So I was really interested. I became more and more fascinated by this kind of <sighs> very hard to kill creature. You know, it was a survivor. Yeah. And it had been around for a very, very, very long time. And the idea of living in a little burrow. Yeah. You know. I like that. Um, to kind of move on to just some general things, yeah. um, what's your least favorite part about writing? <laughs> My least favorite part about writing is probably having to start. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Are you a big you know? stare at the blank page and just what do I do? Or, or like how do you get started? The best way for me to get started is simply to just start writing, yeah. and usually longhand, because you know, being longhand frees me up to be messy, doodle, whatever. And like, but the, the the part that I don't like about starting is that I get impatient. It's like I want the draft, mm 
You know, I just want it there because then once I have the draft, then I can revise it. And revising is the part that I really enjoy. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, obviously there are exceptions. Yeah. Um, when I wrote the first draft of the last poem in the book, Homecoming, which is a personal favorite, that first draft came out in one sitting. It was really long. Um, I was just possessed by this voice. And it's like, I've got to follow this through. I've yeah. got to see where this ends up. And then like six months, it was narrated by a woman uh, who had gone back to their old country, which was the kingdom, with her husband. And then when I went back to revise it, like, this is the husband's poem. And so I just completely just, changed it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a huge change. Yeah. And it was so fun. You yeah. know, there's, there. you know what I mean? It's like, there is this special creative angle that one has, you know, it's like you've already got a draft, so you know what the whole looks like, sort of, Yeah. you know, and then you can see all these possibilities. And when, when you first start, it's like, or at least for me, you know, it's like I'm groping and it's like, you know, and I won't, you know, have to turn off the uh, inner critic and all that stuff and just put it out there right yeah i love the idea of the um the barf draft is what a friend calls it for audio oh, stuff yes. yeah. oh no i tell students all the time give yourself permission to write crap yeah you know because otherwise you won't write. I, that's, that's great and kind of leads me to my next topic right. um you've been teaching uh writing for a very long time both at noca before and um lusher charter school for for a number of years uh which you founded the creative writing department there yep uh, and which you're the chair of now kind of looking back at your teaching career I, I was interested to hear what would you tell young brad the teacher uh starting out what advice would you give him what would you to kind of like get him a start, head start in the right direction be more kind to yourself and be a lot more kind to them. Yeah? Yeah. I had so much trouble with self-confidence um, when I was starting out as a teacher. <laughs> My poor students, like, Mr. Richard, can you speak up? Mr. Richard, can you speak up? And, you know, just terrified that something was going to go wrong. It didn't help that the person who had taught me in high school was um, my chair. Yeah. And he was quite a presence. But yeah, to be more kind to myself, once I reached a point where I felt comfortable enough and I could start improvising yeah. in the classroom, then teaching became so much more fun and so much more of a discovery for me, Yeah, you know, with whatever we were doing. Um, in fact, I remember the day it happened. We were doing a unit on surrealism, which I had meticulously planned, you know, to the minute. And then there just reached some point in the conversation about a poem. And I'm like, you know what? There's writing activity we need to do right now. Yeah. You know, and I just threw everything else away and we did that and I gave up my plan, you know. And in terms of being more kind to them, I've been so fortunate to work with, for the most part, students who have chosen to do this kind of study. Mm -hmm. And they've mostly been extremely bright and talented, you know. So it's easy to forget that they are still children, mm -hmm. right? You know, a 16-year-old, sorry, 16-year-olds, you're still a child, right? So to be a lot, I wish, not that I think I was horrible, yeah. <laughs> but I can't, there are incidents that I look back on and kind of wince, like, hmm, I could have done so much, been so much kinder to that person, and probably they would have enjoyed what they were doing more. 
Yeah, that, that's you know? hard, especially with really intelligent students who yeah. maybe don't have the emotional maturity, but they are like writing or delving into things and understanding things that are way beyond their years, right? It's incredible. It's astounding. Yeah. You know? yeah. I think that that's fantastic. Um, what was your favorite lesson to teach? Like over, over all these years, what's your favorite thing that you've gotten to teach them? So I'll pick two things. Yeah. Um, so the NOCA Creative Writing Program and the Lecture Creative Writing Program, very literature heavy, mm -hmm. right? Um, so students leave with a whole lot under their belts. And Moby Dick, big surprise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of my very, very favorite things to teach, and I can just get so excited. And, you know, I assign different portions of the book to students to teach and, you know, give them a little coaching. But it's it's so fun seeing what they discover, uh, what they get the class to do. I don't know how well you remember Moby Dick, but the, do you remember the character Pip? Yes. Yeah. So you remember there's a there's a ch uh, chase. They're going after some whales. And a lot of commotion. Pip falls out of the boat. And they're going to get him. But then they hear that there is another pod of whales about a mile away. Mm -hmm. So they just take off and they leave Pip hanging onto a beam in mm -hmm. the water. And he is terrified, um, and he thinks he's going to die. Um, <laughs> the students who were teaching that section of the book asked people to choose a scene to pantomime. And one group chose that scene. And the image of the kid who played Pip, this big, gawky boy, did not resemble Pip physically at all. But he did the most gorgeous job. Yeah? Yeah. So that's, that's a fun one. Um, but I think my favorite things really are fundamentals. You know, I love teaching the fundamentals of poetry because one has to revisit them over and over and over again. And I think teaching ways to surprise yourself as a writer, you know, so activities that involve chance and that trick your imagination into coming up with stuff that you would not otherwise have thought of. Yeah. And it's, it's so exciting. It's like, it's like, I wrote that. Yeah. I think that's so great because a lot of students don't get a chance to have teachers like that, to have that kind of freeing aspect to really experiment and also to have guides for, for tomes like that. You know, there's mm -hmm. so many books that um, I didn't get a chance to read in either college or high school that are just daunting now because I don't have the context or somebody to kind of guide me and help me really get it. Um, like I never got to read Ulysses and I ah. still feel bad about it. I'm going to tackle it one day by myself, but it's not the same as being in a classroom with my peers and really diving into the meat of that. It's right? so funny that you say it because in order to make myself read Ulysses, yeah. I had to teach it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to read it otherwise. It's been sitting there. I started over and over and over again, you know, okay. That's cool. So, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. I know you have a few events coming up, uh, one including at Octavia Books, mm -hmm. and you're going to be reading with a former student of yours who also has a book coming out, Elizabeth Gross, right? Yep. Are you excited about the event? Very excited, yes. So we are pressmates. Mm -hmm. She won a 
manuscript competition from the same press the same summer. <laughs> so <laughs> she got her news first, and she called me and said, Brad, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, that's so great. And then, you know, two weeks later, Elizabeth, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> so it's really wonderful. And of course, I love Elizabeth's work. And yeah, she's an amazing person. That's so, so much fun. And I'm yeah. sure, like, you know, being a teacher so long in the city, you get to see a lot of former students going out and doing really interesting things. Um, how does that feel for you? It's really nice, yeah. you know. Um, it's really nice keeping up with some students and uh, seeing um, that, the, you know, they're still writing or that they're doing something that's super interesting. It was certainly amazing to see one student get a poem in The New Yorker. Another student just recently got an agent. Uh, you know, he's in the second year of grad school. Yeah, it's it's really nice. I could see that. On another subject, uh, what's a poem or a book that you continue to come back to? And the answer is probably going to be Moby Dick, right? <laughs> no, but, but I really am interested. What's a, what's a poem that you really find yourself drawn to and just think about a lot? So I'll mention two. One is uh, Wallace Stevens' poem of Mere Being, mm -hmm. which was one of his last poems. Um, it may have been the last poem he wrote. Um, and, you know, Stevens is known for, you know, uh, intellectually daunting, you know, kind of austere poetry. But there's a line that has always fascinated me because it's so simple. The bird sings, its feathers shine. And like there's the stripped down nature of that language is so moving in its context and knowing that it's his last poem. Another one is the first poem in the collected poems of Robert Hayden, and it's The Diver. And he he didn't put all of his early work into his collected poems, so placing The Diver was a very deliberate choice. Hmm. And I, much to my shame, I didn't really um, dive, so to speak, into <laughs> his work until about five years ago. And I, I sat down and read the collected poems in one sitting. It's just an amazing uh, book. And that poem is so imaginative and so moving and strange and just gorgeously wrought. Um, I mean, the level of sound, it's just got this incredible architecture. And then it hit me. It's like, this reminds me so much of Adrian Rich's Diving Into the Wreck. Mm -hmm. So I did a little bit of research and yeah, pretty strong speculation. She perhaps unconsciously, like, forgot that she had read that poem. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's really interesting to compare the two. That, that's interesting. I love how work kind of moves in that way. And mm -hmm. you have um, these inspirations kind of happening like that. And I love like how you are describing, there's a kind of an affection and a love right there, oh, yes. um, which is great to see because, I mean, you're truly experiencing it and you have a really thoughtful and personal takes on these things, um, which I think is lovely. So, well, Thank you, David. Oh, well, to kind of wrap us up, Brad, um, I'm wondering what are you reading right now? And also um, what's on the horizon for you? What do you have coming up after the, the launch? So right now I am um, kind of rereading uh, Maurice Ruffin's uh, We Cast Shadow, which is so astounding. And... Oh, I have too many books lying around that I'm <laughs> desperate to to get to. But yeah, that's the, that's what I'm reading right now. Highly, highly recommended. And on the horizon for me after this launch, I guess this will be the first public announcement that I'm retiring. So I've been telling people that 
once I have fully retired, what I will say if people ask what I do, I'll say, I, I used to teach full-time. Now I'm a writer. Yeah. You know, I, the idea of calling myself retired just seems very weird. Very strange. Yeah, I very, see very strange. So I'll be doing a lot of work with our local Scholastic Art and Writing Awards affiliate, which I direct, wow. um, and which I really want to grow in all kinds of ways. No, I can see that. So, well, yeah. that's exciting. That's exciting yeah. So I'm going to be staying yeah. with, you know, education to some degree. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Well, well, Brad, I'm, I'm really excited for you. I, I'm super psyched about the book. And um, what date is that again for the launch? That is Wednesday, April 24th. And Elizabeth and I will also be on a panel together the New Orleans Poetry Festival this weekend. And Elizabeth is doing a couple of other events yeah. in the festival. So, well, yeah. fantastic, Brad. Well, thank you. Thank you.